KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have you with us as we come to the end of yet another week on our uh, show. Um, and we've got so much to talk about that I want to get right to uh, introducing uh, the panel. It's Friday, which means that my partner is Jim Galloway, the former political writer, political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, uh, who knows more about politics than uh, almost anybody else I can think of, which means, Jim, that not only have uh, you got great experience, but you're getting older. How are you, Jim? <laughs> uh, yes, thank you for that. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm much older than I was yesterday. Uh, I'm, I'm doing fine. It's a, it's a, uh, a very interesting day, interesting time uh, in Washington and in, and in Atlanta right now. Absolutely, and we're going to talk about stories out of both uh, the United States Capitol and the state of Georgia. Stephen Fowler is back with us. He's the political reporter for GPB News and also the host of Battleground Ballot Box, which is a very popular podcast uh, that GPB produces. And so, Stephen, we're glad to have you with us. Uh, let's uh, give you a chance to give a quick plug. What's the most recent edition of Battleground Ballot Box about? Well, the most recent edition, I traveled to Elberton, Georgia, and talked to a bunch of community members about who decided to blow up the Georgia Guidestones and why they're mad about it. And they're not mad about it because they are some secret Satan-worshipping group of people. It's because the monument is a testament to the granite industry, which Elberton has and few other places in the world can come close to producing. So I think it's a fascinating story. I've, well, it is interesting, and people can get it wherever they get po uh, podcasts. But, Jim, that reminds me of something you and I are aware of. Governors of the state of Georgia for years have had nameplates on the desks in their offices that are made out of granite that I think comes from Elbert. Or do I have that wrong? Are they marble from another county in the no, state? No, no, I believe they're 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 granite. I mean, they're granite. Look, this is. I mean, uh, the, the Elberton has been a, a source of granite for decades and decades. Uh, it, it, there was back in the eighties or nineties, there was even a TV series breaking away. Uh, that that was filmed in in Elberton because it because it was about uh, a quarry town. See, this is why we have you on the show. I'm not kidding when I say you have great history here. We're also going to welcome two brand new panelists to the show today. I'm very happy about that. First, uh, Tanya Washington, who is a professor of law at Georgia State University. Tanya, you grew up in Washington D.C. Um, you clerked for a federal appeals uh, judge, I think, in Maryland. Uh, you did your uh, uh, law studies at the University of Maryland and then got a master's in law at Harvard. So um, you have a great background. And one of the things that you're teaching right now that we'll get into today is you teach education law, right? Absolutely. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much. And we also are joined by Stan Washington. No relation. Stan is a native of Atlanta. Um, he has been writing for the Atlanta Voice and been an editor at the Atlanta Voice for many, many years. Um, he's one of the best-known longtime journalists, certainly um, as he chronicles the African-American experience in Atlanta and much more than that. Um, and Stan, it's really a pleasure and a treat. You and I have known each other for a very long time. I'm so glad you're finally on the show. Thank you, and uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Uh, you know, we also share the same birthday, March 28th. That's right. We're <laughs> that's exactly right. Uh, the Atlanta Voice, we should say, Stan, has been uh, around since, I think, 1966, a, yeah. uh, a long and estimable a history in Georgia, right? Yes, 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 it has. And, uh, uh, and thanks to the internet, now more people can see it you know, around the world. So if they just go to the Atlanta, com, they will get more. 
information than the weekly newspaper that uh, okay. we put out. We still put out the weekly newspaper each week. I'm, I'm not sure how long that's going to last. I don't sit in that moment. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Well, it's good to have you with us uh, today, Stan. I, I think we should talk. I, I want to start. There are so many areas I could start in. But, Jim, I, I think I want to talk for a few minutes about what's happening in terms of how Georgians are reacting to uh, to the uh, still reacting to the SCOTUS decision, the Supreme Court decision on Roe, and then the uh, federal courts here saying that the Georgia abortion law, the very, very restrictive law, was um, going to go into effect immediately. The AJC, Jim, uh, did polling on this this past week, and uh, a majority of Georgians say they don't want this the restrictive abortion law here. And some of them, a plurality of them, say that the uh, where a politician stands, a candidate stands on the right to choice will have some impact on whether they will vote for that candidate or not, Jim. Right, and that's that's what makes that that's what has Republicans worried, and 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 maybe Democrats a little bit uh, uh, feeling like they might might have a, a a tool to avoid a what could be a very very harsh November. Uh, we had, I think, on the twenty sixth. Uh, earlier this week, uh, th- we had the ACLU refiling that law, the lawsuit, uh, in in front of, with the aim of getting it in front of the Georgia Supreme Court, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and here, I, I'd love to hear from Tanya on this because what they're counting on is the privacy, is, is the privacy strength. You are, you and I are thinking the same way, uh, Jim. We're gonna. That's exactly what I want to get to in a minute. But Stephen, let's. Uh, point out that this lawsuit by the ACLU, uh, it, it's, it's a number of uh, pro-choice uh, groups who are involved. Sister Song is involved in this, ACLU, and I think a couple of other organizations. And as, as Jim points out, Stephen, they're going to argue that Georgia's privacy uh, uh, law is much stronger than uh, whatever the U.S. Constitution had in mind in terms of privacy, Right. Right. And so, you know, when you think about the law, obviously there's a lot talked about the U.S. Constitution and how it governs things. You also have federal laws that apply, whether you're in Georgia or Florida or Alabama or things like that. And a lot of what's interesting is that the argument here for the abortion law is that the state constitution of Georgia, which is the, you know, the governing document for what goes on within our 159 counties here, has a stronger protection of privacy than the general federal law. And so, you know, in a lot of issues we've seen over the years, whether it's abortion or voting rights or things like that, uh, state laws and state constitutions often step in where the federal laws do not or cannot. And so in this case, what we're seeing is an argument that Georgia's state constitution is more of an arbiter of how abortion should be governed than any decision made by the Supreme Court or federal laws. All right, so Tanya, the Constitution of Georgia guarantees the right to privacy in Article 20. And uh, basically what it says is that everyone's private life, place of personal activity, personal records, correspondence, communication by telephone or other technical means, as well as messages received through technical means, shall be inviolable. So talk to us about that and how powerful that could be in terms of this argument that uh, abortion, that the restrictions against abortion here are unconstitutional under state law. Right. And so, as Stephen noted, um, the challenge is questioning whether Georgia's Life Act is unconstitutional under the Georgia Constitution. And that provision that you just articulated um, provides one of the longest standing and most robust set of privacy, constitutionally protected privacy rights of any state constitution and dates back to um, a 1905 decision by the Georgia Supreme Court. And so that provides a firm ground for a challenge by the ACLU that in the wake of the Dobbs decision, which kind of kicks abortion regulations back to the states, the state constitutions will be controlling. 
And in Georgia, that means that any abortion ban must comply with the privacy rights that are afforded by the state constitution. The other challenge that the ACLU advanced in the decision that was in the the challenge that was filed a couple of, of days ago is that the ban needs to be reissued or reformulated because it was signed into law before the Dobbs decision. And I think we should be really, I think the ACLU should be careful about advancing that argument because they could reenact a more restrictive ban, right, that bans abortions not at six weeks but at conception or prohibits women from leaving the state to obtain abortions or enhances reporting requirements that deputize citizens to report on other citizens. So I think the strongest of the two challenges is is asserting the privacy provision in the Georgia Constitution as a basis for invalidating the Life Act. Um, and, and this case is going to be heard by uh, Judge uh, Robert McBurney, who has been so active lately. We've been reading about him in so many uh, cases. He's the judge who just ruled that Fonnie Willis could not uh, any longer uh, uh, be involved in the investigation of Burt Jones as lieutenant governor candidate uh, because she once held a, a, a fundraiser for his opponent, uh, Charlie Bailey. He's been involved in any number of high-profile cases, and he'll hear this one as well. Uh, Stan, um, one of the things that's interesting about this poll is that, or, well, I'm sorry, not really the poll itself, but actually the ban on abortion here is that um, – it, it's it's going to affect and impact um, many more African-American women, other minority women, people who are in uh, uh, living in poorer communities, according to a lot of the uh, 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 pro-choice uh, forces out there. My question, and I, I have about the way in terms of you look at this, is, is it really going to, is it, aim at the poor communities of color, or is it really aimed at the um, white women to prevent them because the population is declining to prevent them from having that right? And I think if the Democrats or liberal or progressives would switch it around and just basically say, we're for it because this means the future of more Democratic voters will be raised in the state of Georgia because of this ban and not so much that it affects. And I think the Republicans would do a flip on this if they looked at it in that sense like, oh, we're basically, we're basically allowing the, the left to have more future voters. Now that's you know a probably out of the box way of looking at things, but I don't. Yeah, know. yeah let me let me. Yeah, uh, Natalie. By the way, can we figure out a way to make uh, Stan to get Stan's uh, line a, a little better because it's very hard to understand what he's saying. So, Stan, we're going to work uh, with you on that. Jim, uh, Stan's advancing a theory that many people think is really uh, out of left field in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. What's what's interesting is uh, on 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 this particular issue is is if you if you take a look at the AJC poll, the 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 strongest demographic uh, against the Supreme Court's decision uh, are black women. You know, it's it's uh, or, 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 or I mean, it's it's well, it's it's uh, 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 black voters, if you will. And then if you go if you go into uh, there's an, there was another question on the. Uh, on the on on the poll that that is how much confidence do you have in the supreme court now and everybody you, you we've all seen seen uh polls that say that the 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 the, the that the confidence of the american public has tanked a good bit but but there's there's nowhere that it's tanked more than among black voters according to the, especially in georgia Stephen, um i i I said on the show yesterday, and I got some pushback from listeners uh, on this, and that's fine, uh, that although there is a plurality of, of people who said that, that 
uh, the abortion decision would influence their their votes. Uh, inflation continues to be a much more uh, robust concern of, of voters, and and I really can't help but wonder just how far uh, the uh, the restrictive law in Georgia will go in motivating people to turn out and vote against those who uh, supported that law. Well, I, I think what we've seen is that. Certainly, there are single-issue voters on abortion on both sides of the debate that might feel motivated to vote uh, that weren't motivated before. But in a, <clears throat> excuse me, in many ways, it's kind of another building block for voters of both parties as just one of many motivating factors of why they feel like they should support a certain candidate or oppose a certain candidate. And I guess what I mean by that is that the abortion decision isn't necessarily going to mean all of a sudden that there's an army of people that are going to vote for Stacey Abrams that weren't going to vote before or weren't going to vote for her before, but rather this decision might be the galvanizing thing that in addition to abortion, in addition to positions on health care, in addition to positions on voting rights and other things like that, it just fits into a narrative that both parties and their major nominees have and that it's just yet another motivating factor to, obviously, you can only vote once, but to make that vote go farther. And so I think it might be, it might be a more effective messaging tool. It may be persuading some of these independent voters that will be the difference makers in both the governor's race and the Senate race. And so it's not necessarily the actual abortion decision, but rather how that decision and the reaction to it fits into people's overall feelings about Republicans and Democrats in the state of Georgia. I, 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 that's exactly, it seems to me that you've said that so much better than I've been able to, so thank you for that. Tanya, before we move on to another subject, let me give you another uh, chance to talk a little bit more about this lawsuit, about the law itself. Uh, Bill, I actually wanted to talk about the, the poll that related to confidence in the Supreme Court. What sure, I think is sure. interesting about that poll is that that seems to be one of the things that conservatives and liberals can agree on, that they do not have confidence in this institution, which heretofore has enjoyed a great deal of confidence, uh, much more so than in the other branches of government. I think people are disappointed about um, the the court's ruling on, um, you know, Medica- Medicare and, and the Obama health care um, initiative. I think they've been disappointed in the proceedings and how politicized they've been both for conservative and liberal um, nominees to the court. And I think both parties, uh, members of both parties have been disappointed with their decisions. And I think what people now realize is that this institution is not apolitical. And that is what I think is driving kind of that um, plurality across parties that are losing confidence in the institution itself. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, before we get off the subject, to this seems like a the, the challenge is a very serious and legitimate one. Doesn't mean the Supreme Court of the state is going to rule in the favor of ACLU, but there's no question, Tanya. This is a real challenge based on Georgia's privacy law. Yes, absolutely. It is rooted in a long-standing uh, constitutional tradition. Uh, of protecting privacy rights in Georgia. And so this is not just a uh, frivolous lawsuit. And this is going to also air some of the uh, legitimate critiques about the far-reaching consequences of this actual ban that I don't think people gave thought to when the ban was authored because I don't think anyone actually thought Roe would be overturned. So remember, this was written while, you know, Dobbs was still moving forward. And the the anticipation was that, you know, Roe would be left intact and that the best that Georgia could do would be to ban abortions at the six-week mark. Uh, Tanya, let me ask you a question. Uh, uh, in, in the U.S. Supreme Court decision, you had Clarence Thomas saying that that the, the same underlying foundation that, that that led to the overturning of uh, abortion uh, ought to ought to be applied to same-sex marriage. To uh, the Supreme Court de- decision uh, saying that bans on contraception are 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 
are uh, are are unconstitutional is is could this could this ACLU case touch on on those those topics or at least undergird uh, 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 same-sex marriage in Georgia the right to birth control in Georgia uh, absolutely um, because to the extent that anything is framed any right or conduct is framed as being protected by that privacy provision that's explicitly set forth in the Georgia Constitution, all of those other actions could be similarly argued to be protected um, conduct, constitutionally protected conduct, and therefore bans of contraception would not um, be allowed, or bans on same-sex intimacy, which is also not articulated in the federal constitution and would fall within that panoply of, of rights that uh, Justice Thomas is arguing should not be recognized. Um, those kinds of rights could similarly be considered uh, protected under Georgia's constitution, though not under the federal constitution. All right, we're going to watch how that uh, unfolds in the weeks ahead. Why don't we do this? Why don't we get our first break of the show out of the way now? When we come back, I want to talk to Stephen Fowler about a major story that you played a big role in that has to do with the uh, New Georgia election law about the placement and the number of drop boxes available for people to deposit ballots. We'll do that more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Jim Galloway, Stephen Fowler of GPB News, Tanya Washington, professor of law at Georgia State University and a new member of our panel, and uh, Stan Washington of the Atlanta Voice, another new member of the panel, join us uh, for the show today. Uh, Stephen, you uh, worked with uh, NPR and WABE on a major, major data dive into how drop boxes were used in the May primary election. We know that the new state election law limits the number uh, that can uh, uh, be used around the state and limits how they can be used. They have to be inside of uh, uh, polling places and only be used or, or election offices only used during uh, office hours. And you came up with a major, some major findings. Give us the highlights of what you learned in terms of how it affected May voting. Right. So what we did was we looked at how many people used drop boxes in the 2020 presidential election. And to do that, we combed through more than 9,000 drop box transfer forms, which is the piece of paper that the poll workers fill out when they unload the drop box at the end of each day, telling how many ballots, where it is, et cetera. And we found that there were about 550,000 people that used drop boxes about you know more than one in 10 votes in the presidential election came in a drop box. Then we mapped those drop boxes and looked where they were. Then we got the list of drop boxes that are in use today in 2022, mapped those, and did some data analysis to find the average travel time for all 7.5 million voters that we could find in the voter file and basically figure out where people's travel time to drop boxes went up, where it went down, and where it stayed the same. And generally what we found is in the urban counties of Fulton, DeKalb, Cobb, Gwinnett, and others, access went down. Uh, and in rural places that either didn't have a drop box or things like that, access went up. And uh, we found anecdotally some people who didn't have their votes counted in the May primary because they didn't have the same access to a drop box before, or they did, but they had to do you know more than an hour worth of driving round trip to do things. And so it's one narrow slice of a 98 page election law that changed virtually every aspect of voting. It's one narrow slice of how Georgians can vote because you can still put it in the mail 
or drop your absentee ballot off at the elections office or use three weeks of early voting or do election day. But this was really one of the first data-driven looks at the before and after of an election law change that was done in Senate Bill 202. One of the most important findings, I think it's safe to say, Stephen, is that this was more of an issue in urban centers of the state than in rural centers. It was harder to get to a drop box if you lived in, say, Atlanta or uh, Macon or Columbus. And the implication of that, of course, is that those are those tend to be Democratic voting centers. Right. I mean, the pandemic was unprecedented. Adding drop boxes in Georgia was unprecedented. And technically speaking, if they weren't written into this law, they would cease to exist completely. But I I think, and this is where a lot of the pushback to this story is kind of missing the point, is that there were a lot of people that used drop boxes either as the first time voting or an easy time voting. And this law took away something that was relatively easy to use for a lot of people and made it easier for them to vote. Now, you know, clearly there was record turnout in the May primary, but we don't know, for example, if there were more drop boxes, if that record could have been even higher, you know. And so you can't conflate record turnout with the impact of drop boxes. But you also can't say, and we didn't say, that removing access to drop boxes disenfranchised people or cost this number of votes or things. All we can say is the places that use the most The places that have a lot of Democrats, the places that have a lot of people of color now have less access, and the places that don't need them and won't use them now have them. Jim, you're muted. You've gone down. There you go. There we go. Okay. All right. (laughs) Sorry about that. Uh, No, this this is a very, very interesting piece uh, because, number one, uh, just to go back to back to to 2020, I mean, uh, the drop boxes, because they were new, they became a focal point of of uh, of uh, the the Republican messaging, especially from Donald Trump, that uh, that they were sources of fraud. Now, uh, Stephen can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't there was there was never any significant fraud found uh, via the use of drop boxes. And this is, uh, you know. To, uh, SB two hundred two, the, the 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 motto that went along with it in the Republican camp was it, it would make voting easier and cheating harder. Uh, I, I would modify it because it, that, that that motto and says uh, it makes voting easier, but not too easy. Uh, I mean, there is a there is a philosophy on the Republican side that that jumping through hoops. To cast your ballot is a good thing because it shows dedication. It shows it. it you know it. It. Uh, uh, it shows that you really want to participate in in, in government, and and there there that's the philosophical difference I think between uh, you have between Republicans and Democrats. So I Stan, I think Jim had exactly in his mind what I was thinking about. The mantra from Republicans uh, when they were debating SB 202 was, we'll make it easier to vote, harder to cheat. It, it strikes me that when you lim- limit the number of ballot uh, drop boxes, although as Stephen points out, it's hard to tell whether that had a major impact or not on the May primary this past year. You're make, you are making it harder for people to vote. And it strikes me that in, a, in, a, in the American democracy, uh, the notion of making it as easy as possible for people to cast ballots ought to prevail, Stan. I think the, the, the real philosophy by the Republicans on this is to limit the access of the opposition party, those who may be liberal, Democrat, progressive, or what have you. It's not about trying to prove to the the electorate that, yo, you really want to vote, so you jump through these hoops. It's all about limiting the access for voters of the opposite party. This is all about remaining in power. Nothing it has nothing to do about voter integrity or what have you. It's about win at all costs. And that's what the Republican parties have been doing since the days of, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, uh, Newt Gingrich. 
when he brought that scorched earth philosophy into Congress, and things have gotten worse ever since. So it's just a new way. Oh, these drop boxes, they seem to be helping the opposition. So we must come up with something to deal with that. And we must redistrict, you know, every 10 years or whatever to cut, you know, too many of the Democrats who voted in this particular area. So we must call that up like we, like they did in, in Nashville, I think it was, into three districts that are dominantly Republican. So it's it's about winning at all costs. That's the underlying philosophy. And, Tanya? And I think what um, what evidences the truth of what Stan is saying is that they didn't remove or reduce the number of drop boxes in every county, right? So they were very strategic, according to that really important study that was done. They were really strategic in limiting the number of drop boxes in specific counties that just coincidentally happen to have greater numbers of voters of color and voters who are more progressive, more Democratic-leaning voters. Stephen, there are aspects, and I didn't want to get into a whole debate again about SB202, but as long as we're going to uh, talk about it at least briefly, there are certainly aspects of that law which Republicans can point to and say, here are ways in which we increased access. Um, uh, Expanding uh, uh, the, uh, they were going to try to eliminate Sunday voting, souls to the polls voting altogether. They ended up expanding that. There's more Saturday voting. There are restrictions and there are some uh, ways in which they open things up at least a bit. Do we have to say that to be fair? Yeah. I mean, when you look at voting law changes, very rarely are they zero sum. I mean, Georgia's law does things to expand voter access. Georgia has some of the best voter access laws in the country. Three weeks of early voting plus two Saturdays is more than most states. You know, Georgia has more polling places than many states, partly a byproduct of having so many counties and so many people. But, you know, Georgia has no excuse absentee voting, which other states don't have. And so you can very easily uh, close one eye and tilt your head to the side and say, Georgia's got the best voting laws in the country. It's so easy to vote in Georgia. You could just as easily tilt your head the other direction and say, Georgia makes it really, really hard for people to vote and certain people to vote. And so the reality with elections is uh, it's complicated. There's nuance to this. And, you know, with the drop boxes, you know, that's not to say that removing drop boxes in metro counties means that there's going to be a huge drop off in turnout of voters. What it means is that fewer people will probably vote absentee, which is something that was also probably going to happen anyway. And it changes voter behavior. But what it does from an election administration standpoint, both uh, Democrat and Republican urban and rural election officials I talked to said these drop box laws are stupid. I went to a county. I went to Heard County on the Alabama border (laughs) where the elections director there said, you know, Heard County has about 8000 people and one stoplight. And this drop box is as useless as the one stoplight is in Heard County. And you know what? I drove through the stoplight and would probably agree. And meanwhile, these urban counties in Fulton County, everybody likes to rag on Fulton County for having long lines and lots of issues. Here was an option that voters used so they didn't show up on Election Day. There weren't long lines. There wasn't national media reporting four hours of black people waiting to vote in the city of Atlanta. And now, because of conspiracies about drop boxes and because of a false push for uniformity, Now you're taking a tool out of the toolbox for elections officials to do what actually helps their voters cut down on lines. And then in the rural counties, you're just giving them pointless busy work and paperwork to do for people that don't use a drop box. So, you know, when you look at these law changes, you know, you have to look at the effort that voting has and that people have to vote. A lot of Georgia's law changes don't necessarily stop people from voting but it increases the effort for them to cast that same ballot. And around the margins, that does mean people don't vote. And when Georgia has such tight margins, it matters. All right. Um, We're going to post a link 
to uh, the story that you were a big part of on our social media pages because it's really very well worth your time. And congratulations to all of you for uh, the kind of data you collected around the issue uh, uh, of uh, drop boxes. Uh, Tanya, I want to turn to you on this next topic because you told us before the show that you are teaching uh, or you taught a cl- you teach a class in education law, and you talk to us about one of the questions you pose to students in your class this past semester, which relates directly to what I want to talk about next. Um, school starts next week in a number of counties around the state, and um, of course, one of the first things that teachers are going to have to deal with is how they now adjust their teaching to this notion of divisive, divisive concepts. Uh, The legislature uh, passed laws that says that you cannot uh, teach about racism if it's going to make white people and the white kids in the class feel uh, guilty and and other that gender becomes a, a troubling issue to talk about in class. So I'd love for you to start us off um, with your thoughts about this, because there are a lot of teachers, obviously, around the state who are nervous and worried about what this is going to mean in terms of how they put together instruction plans and what they can say in a classroom. Absolutely. Um, this this fall is um, provoking uh, anxiety amongst many teachers, particularly those who are teaching social studies and history and those subjects that kind of inherently might cross the lines, the blurry lines that are established in this divisive concepts bill. Um, I do not envy them because they are trying to figure out where those lines are and, and, and what is prohibited won't become clear until the bill is actually challenged in court and we have some court rulings that clarify what constitutes a divisive concept within the meaning of this uh, prohibition. I do, um, one of the, you referenced my final exam question. I taught education law in the spring semester, and I'll be teaching it again this fall. And uh, the, the question I posed to my students was to analyze the constitutionality and the wisdom of the bill. Uh, based on everything that we had studied, all the different demographics of students who attend public schools in in the state of Georgia. And there really is an open constitutional question. Um, There is no direct precedent that would uh, offer a definitive response as to whether the bill is constitutional or not. As for the wisdom of the bill, um, my students offered many different perspectives. Some of them supported the, the, the divisive concepts bill. Others were against it. Um, and I didn't, you know, grade them based on their, their position. But what many of them uh, did point out, which I think is, is true, is that um, it's the language of the bill is so vague that it doesn't tell teachers what they can and cannot do. And it is going to have a chilling effect on what teachers do in the classroom, even if it's unconscious, right? Because teachers need their jobs and to avoid running afoul of this bill, which isn't clear in terms of what it prohibits and allows, they are going to silence and censure themselves in the classroom, which I don't think helps them to provide the uh, instruction that promotes the kind of critical thinking that we want our students to have going to public schools in Georgia. Stan? Yeah, I think one of the long-lasting effects of this is that what's going to happen with our teachers, and and there's already a shortage of good teachers, as we know, as more restrictive bills come out of legislators, and not just here across the country, what's going to happen is that they're going to leave the industry. You're not going to have teachers who are going to be staying in, very few who will be staying in for 20, 25 years, as, as it was, you know, before. Because you keep getting these uh, politicians who are running for office who are coming up with these ideas in order to appease their so-called voters. Now, I've never known this to be an issue in terms of divisiveness, but how are you going to – America was built on divisive. How far back can you not – what can you not talk about 
you know, and I think that's one of the problems with the bill. You know, COVID drove teachers out of the classroom. I've known some personally who said, hey, I'm, I'm done. You know, they retired five, ten years early uh, because of that. And I think that's the same thing that's going to happen to another topic I think you're going to bring up is about the uh, poll workers, the election officials. We're going to be losing good people there because of that. So I think that's going to be one of the long-term effects. No matter how this bill turns out, the teachers are going to just throw up their hands and say, enough, I'm out. Well, let, let's talk to the father of a teacher, Jim Galloway. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, Bill, I think what we're going to see here is is that in Georgia has 180 school systems. And in diverse school systems, I don't think this is going to be a problem because because you're going to you're going to you're going to have some uh, uh, you, you, these these topics are going to come up uh, naturally and and then the situation is going to resolve itself. I think this is really going to take a, it's it's really going to be a worry if you have uh, 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 no diversity, especially in majority white high schools. Uh, because then you might have then you might have students with very little contact with 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 uh, with with minority students and and you you might have a teacher trying to bring them along a little bit and and things get a little bit testy. Uh, 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 as as uh, our, our our listeners know, I, I live in Cobb. Uh, Cobb is one of those areas, I think, because you have a you have a, a you have a changing county. You have a county that's listing Democrat, uh, and and you have a, a Republican school board, a Republican dominated school board, very very uh, very very harshly controlled, um, if you will, uh, and you you wonder uh how this might affect a, a one of my favorite topics in in high school was was current affairs you know how you talk about what's happening right now and for instance uh bill we we touched on this a little bit last week when you were away but you had that situation at Eastside Elementary School in in East Cobb County where they came up with a new logo uh for the school and it turned out to be a, uh, a an eagle that looked very, very much like you might see on an SS badge uh, uh, of, a, of, a, of a Gestapo officer. Uh, and and of course the the the, the school board the, the school superintendent uh, yanked it back very quickly, apologized. But how would you talk about that? It, how that topic might be approached in a classroom? You know that that could give a teacher pause. I think. And, and to, to underscore what was just said, it, the bill is deputizing parents slash voters to monitor what their students are learning and then reporting them for violating this ambiguous law, right? The threshold question is, does my child feel um, uncomfortable? Well, there's any number of topics that we, that's part of a curriculum that can make a child feel uncomfortable. Um, historical realities can make people feel uncomfortable. And the question is, whose comfort is going to be prioritized? Absence from the curriculum can make some students feel uncomfortable. Um, mm. You know, being characterized or not characterized at all in American history can make a student feel uncomfortable. Are we prioritizing the comfort level of white students or majority students over the comfort level of those who may have been excluded from the curricular or may be excluded from the curriculum enti entirely because we want to make sure that we adhere to this, to this law? So, Stephen, let's put this before I've got to get to a break into the political context, the campaign context for right now. Uh, Governor Kemp the other day uh, wrote an essay that was published by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution all about his education goals, and he says education has always been my top priority. He talks about the raises teachers are getting, and it's going to be interesting. We all know who've covered, followed politics in this state for a long time what an important voting block teachers are in an election, and it's kind of hard to calculate what all of this means to Governor Kemp. He did make good on the promise that he made when he was first uh, uh, moving into office, that he was going to give them $5,000 raises. They're doing much better economically because of that. But these restrictive laws 
are also giving teachers some real pause, as we've already said. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out in the governor's election. Right. I mean, like I like I said, with the abortion thing, you know, it's probably not going to be earth shattering, decisive voting block based on just a five thousand dollar raise. But for some teachers who feel like the raise and other adjustments to education and this uh, this bill eliminating distractions from teaching just might reinforce their decision to vote for Brian Kemp and that he's good for teachers. But on the other hand, you might also have teachers who feel like, like, like Jim says, like, like they might not be able to do their jobs and the money is, you know, kind of not good enough to make up for the fact that they can't be themselves or teach what they need to do and how they need to do it. And it might be yet another reason that they want to vote for Stacey Abrams in the race. And so it's, you know, you can filter a lot of the election year decisions in Georgia, be it abortion, voting, education, and things like that. And, and I think really this time more so than previous elections, we're really seeing stark visions and stark lines of the vision of Georgia for the next decade. And I think, you know, I think you're going to have a lot more people or a lot fewer people really undecided about who they feel is the best person to lead this state than maybe in previous elections. And I think we'll see a lot more people engaged and a lot more people voting. Stan, I got to get you a break, but let me give you a last quick word before we do. Yeah, I have to agree with Stephen on that point, but I would also, you know, want to see how many votes did he buy with that five thousand dollars with a group of people who have felt they should have had that five thousand dollars years ago. It's like this is our money; we should have had this ten years ago or more. So it'd be interesting to see that. All right, Stan Washington gets the last word in this segment. We got uh, time to talk a little bit more uh, about other aspects of politics, but we'll do that after these messages. Jim Galloway, there was probably a time, maybe as recently as, say, five to ten years ago, when the fact that the Republican National Committee is training an army of volunteers to be poll watchers at November elections might seem like a good thing. Let's get citizens involved in watching over how democracy plays out. But because Republicans have been crying foul in the 2020 election, because we saw uh, efforts to uh, uh, demonize poll workers, especially we saw in Fulton County, uh, examples of that, suddenly it doesn't seem quite so innocent. Uh, talk about that a little, Jim. Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's uh, at, the, at, at the outset of this show, I, uh, uh, Mr. Fowler here on our on our panel uh, uh, was was talking about what's on his latest uh, podcast, which is titled uh, Battleground Ballot Box. <laughs> and, and and I think that's where we are right now. Look, this is uh, uh, elections have be and, and 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 there is precedent for this. I mean, you have you, the, the the there's an ugly precedent for this uh, way back in the uh, uh, in the in the Reconstruction era uh, in Georgia, where you have where you have knocked down uh, the the ones occurring right now are a lot less bloody and 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 fewer people nobody's getting killed but you have this trench warfare that's that's developed uh on the ground in georgia where where every little thing is being challenged i mean speci- i mean in addition to in addition to republicans uh training poll workers democrats by the way have the same operation have have a similar operation but you have this this new the, this new election law that we've got a kind of deputizes citizens to scour the voter rolls to see if they can find somebody who isn't eligible and you've got citizens holding holding forth lists of of thousands of people and bringing them in front of the local election board yeah that's the second thing that republicans are doing is looking to challenge as many voter registrations as they can in georgia tanya let me give you a chance to weigh in on this as well I'm so glad that Jim referenced Reconstruction because I think it provides a really important historical framework for just how contentious uh, voting can be and that it can lead to violence and death. 
And um, the the idea of deputizing people to both scour the role, the voting rolls, and to um, deputizing them as poll watchers, not for education purposes, not for the purpose of encouraging folks to learn about the elections process, but to monitor behavior of their their fellow citizens and in ways that people may find intimidating, ha- finds, uh, finds uh, it, it is consistent with the history that I think we want to avoid repeating. I am concerned that this army of volunteers is is allowed to make certain assumptions that may be racialized uh, about who is behaving in appropriate ways when they go to vote, and that that would be used as a justification for reporting their behavior, which may have a chilling effect on people going to the polls. I want to give each of you, Stan, and then you, Stephen. We've only got a few minutes, so Stan and then Stephen. Okay, this is very concerning to me. And the reason that this is going on is because you have individuals who are still going around the country making speeches, holding programs, meetings about uh, stopping the steal. You know, and they're doing the, and they have this fake data that they're doing showing people how the election was lost by Donald Trump. Now, we do a little short history where we can see that Donald Trump, as, as what I have heard, has copyright stopped the steal back since 2016 because he was concerned that the establishment Republicans was going to steal the primary from him. And having people showing up and asking you, how did you vote at your house, that's very troubling to me. Well, all right, Stephen, why don't you jump in and get a last word on this? I'll just quickly say that the RNC training poll watchers after decades of them not being able to do so is not as concerning to me in the sense that a lot of the poll watching that we saw in Georgia after 2020 and a lot of the problems that we had were from the local level, from people that didn't know what they were talking about and did have the conspiratorial tone and that with a lot more people watching what's going on, I think the RNC getting people involved is going to be better than having the local people that believe in election conspiracies be the one watching. And there's a lot more people watching the watchers this time. And then the quick thing about the people uh, trying to get people taken off the voter rolls, Georgia and the country already has a really good system in place for catching people that move, that die, that shouldn't be on the voter rolls. And so this law, adding it in there, all it does is adding more burdens for counties to have these hearings and more chances for people to erroneously be taken off the rolls. All right. It's an interesting conversation and an interesting debate, which I uh, really appreciate from all of you on today's show. Stan Washington, Tanya Washington, our two new panelists, thank you so much for uh, being with us for the show. Stephen Fowler, Battleground Ballot Box is available right now. Uh, on any uh, platform you get your podcasts on. Jim Galloway, thank you for being with us. We're completely out of time for today, for this week. We're back again with a brand new show on Monday. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. Bye, everybody.